Welcome to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. In this edition, we discuss cybersecurity with Jack Coons and Ashwin Pell from Unisys. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the show. My name's Grant McCarran, and once again, as always, I'm joined by Catherine Ziesing, the Managing Editor of Australian Defence Magazine. G'day, Kath. Hey, Grant. Today, we're joined by Unisys. We have two gentlemen from Unisys with us. Uh, we have Jack Coons, a 25-year uh, veteran of the US military uh, in the cybersecurity world, and he is currently the Chief Cybersecurity Strategist joining us today from the US. G'day, Jack. Hey, Grant. Thanks to be here. And we also have Ashwin Pal, and he's the Director of Cybersecurity for the Asia-Pacific area. Ashwin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Grant. Good to be here. Excellent. Now, uh, we've got a few topics to go, uh, subjects to go through here. The uh, main theme, as you may have guessed, is cybersecurity, very topical at the moment. And uh, we're going to start with the first question, and we're going to throw to Jack. Uh, you stood up the US Cyber Command while you were still in uniform. Uh, are there any of the uh, lessons you've learned there that you think could apply to Australia and the Asia-Pacific region? Well, so that thanks for the easy start off question, Grant. I appreciate that. So uh, a question like that is when I usually go, so how much time do we have remaining on the clock? <laughs> um, so to be fair, um, extremely big Herculean effort, joint team effort, right? So um, while I can you know, positively say that, yes, I was one of the founding members, right? I was but one of many, um, you know, a tribe of tribes, if you will. And that's kind of where I'd like to begin the conversation, the tribe of tribes. One of the things that we learned, if you can imagine, you know, we had a pre-existing infrastructure, if you will, a pre-existing community and an environment, but it truly was a tribe of tribes. For sure, we had our national security infrastructure and community. We had our Department of Defense infrastructure and community. Um, and even within them, you had the offensively flavored people or offensively leaning people, and you had the defensively leaning people. And then you had the people that just simply designed and architect, uh, architected the infrastructure. Now, somehow we had to bring all of that together and make everybody sing the same song on the same sheet of music, right? So it really became an orchestration kind of conversation, which by the way, we are still learning. So this was uh, circa 2009, 2010. So if you can remember, very similar, and I know we're short on time, but very similar to what's happening on your neck of the woods. Um, If you recall, we had an issue with our financial sector. Uh, We had what many point to the Iranian threat actor, nation state actors that were literally pummeling our financial sector. Um, with DDoS attacks and stuff. And so the U.S. government realized at that moment that we needed a way, a mechanism, if you will, to respond in kind in a offensive fashion. And that really was the genesis uh, and the, the impetus, if you will, for the generation of U.S. Cyber Command. Um, I was part of the U.S. Army cyber, Service Cyber Component to that. Um, and I was the first chief of the offensive capability for that. But the big lesson learned was, you know, I like to, you know, have the hand, right? You need five things in order to do cyberspace correctly, uh, especially when you're doing it from a Department of Defense, Ministry of Defense, or just a defense focus. You need uh, access authority. You need a trained team. You need tools, right? But then what most people forget is you actually need approval. And typically in cyberspace, approval is held just like a nuclear weapon at the highest levels of government. 
right? And so one of the things we learned early on is you can have all the passion in the world, all the smartest people in the room, the best tools, all the capability, and you actually have the access on net to do what you want to do, but lacking the practiced approval process and deconfliction process, you're not going anywhere. And so many times we got right up to the line and then had to back off because we actually didn't know who who the right person to ask for approval was, right? So something as simple as organizational design really frustrated the deployment of a technical capability. And I'll pause there for any comments from Ashwin or for, for Grant, if you want further clarification on that. Well, it is particularly inter- interesting. And as um, Jack pointed out, um, we are actually at a stage um, where US was probably a few years ago. Um, and you've seen, so the Australian cybersecurity strategy came out yesterday, fresh off the printing press. Um, and you're seeing a lot of themes in there. But to Jack's point, um, cyber resilience is a very, very strong theme. And what I actually like about it is that it's been recognized. It's not a one-person story. It's actually about government. It's actually about businesses. And it's actually about the community, so people like you and I as well. Because to have a resilient atmosphere, everybody needs to be involved, and that is key. Um, so two of the key takeaways that I actually picked up was, um, and I'm roughly quoting, is the government said that to maximise scarce resources within the cyberspace, they'll actually work on the big nation state stuff, which is actually very, very encouraging to hear. Uh, in fact, there was one of the comments that Unisys made in response to, um, uh, you know, when they actually asked for comments. The second thing that I actually did see um, and I did do a search in the document for this, by the way, um, is offensive security is mentioned six times. So that's a, that's a change in our approach. Yeah. You know, Ashwin, if I could just add a little bit to that. So Ashwin is probably our biggest evangelist in the Unisys camp around the word resiliency. Um, a lot of people talk about it. Very few people actually understand what that word means when you unpack it. And I'll give you an example because for this particular audience, and that was one of the things that, you know, one of, you know, one of the things that Ashwin and I have to do for the company because Unisys is a global company and we've got a hand in government as well as public sector and private sector and all over, we're all over the place, right? So the, the taxonomy, if you will, of a particular word resonates, but it has to be tuned and optimized for a particular audience. And for the audience for this podcast, I will tell you when it comes to resiliency, another issue that we learned is when you decide as a nation to deploy a capability on net against an adversary, if your offensive team is not in sync with your uh, defensive team, what happens is the, the potential for blowback when you let that tool loose in the wild or that capability or that technique loose in the wild, if the adversary gets it and then throws it back at you, the worst thing that can happen is now you're on the receiving end of a very exquisite tool that your offensive team threw, and now your defensive team is scrambling, trying to figure out how to plug the holes or respond to it. And so this resiliency world and uh, the resiliency word in a defensive context takes on a whole new meaning um, because we, we used to call it the blowback question. What is the blowback for what we're about to do to somebody? And a lot of times the answer is the government institution is not prepared for that. That was a very hard lesson learned on our end. Yeah, we've uh, certainly seen that with WannaCry and other such tools. Uh, Exactly as you said, they were designed for others and suddenly, oops, we're on the receiving end. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a very good point, actually. 
So, Ashwin, you focus primarily on the commercial side of the business for Unisys here in Australia and the Asia-Pacific. How much movement are you seeing between the learnings between sectors? So, things that are happening in in finance or critical infrastructure or health, how is that knowledge transferring between sectors? Um, Very slowly, very, very slowly, unfortunately. And, you know, we are talking to to a defense um, audience here, but you've got to realize that no one business is an island. So the entire thing is connected via the supply chain. So, you know, whatever happens in a commercial entity will likely actually, um, you know, affect our defense organization and vice versa. So, you know, this piece is actually important from that angle. Now, going back to your question, Kath, um, we are seeing a very slow uplift, and I do actually mean slow. And a lot of the recent cyber attacks that we've all seen in Australia are case in point, right? I mean, we've seen toll go down and a bunch of other businesses as well. Um, The ransomware thing is almost a disease now, and it's actually getting worse because people are starting to pay, which is only going to, one, encourage the bad guys, and B, actually fund their activity, right? Um, And if you actually think about what can be done better, frankly, going back to the earlier point, it's actually all about resilience. It is about cyber resilience. You know, you can no longer just think about protecting yourself. That Those days are actually gone. People are working from home. You've actually got, you know, home computers connecting back to your infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. So you can no longer just rely on protection. It's got to be about resilience. So if something does go wrong, how quickly can you pick it up? And how quickly can you respond to it? How quickly can you recover from it? That's really, really the mantra now. And it doesn't have to be difficult. You have to focus on the basics first. Like, I mean, I've been doing this for 22 years. And frankly, every time I actually go into an environment, one of the first things to actually notice is the basics are actually missing. You know, things like we haven't patched our machines for over a year, et cetera, et cetera. You know, these things are actually coming up all the time. And I always go back to the essential aid. We've had the essential aid around for a little while now, um, and it's a great, great guideline. I mean, I work across Asia-Pac, and it surprises me as to how many countries actually refer to the essential aid outside of Australia. So we've got to rely on that as well. The other thing, and I'd love to hear um, Jack's comments on this afterwards, is we've got to take an attack-based approach, right? We've got to understand who is attacking us and how and be able to prepare and respond. And, you know, we've been doing this in warfare for years and years and years. It's time we actually brought those lessons back into cybersecurity. Um, for those that know of the MITRE attack framework, I always reference that for this piece. It actually tells you quite nicely and simply how the adversaries are actually trying to get into our systems, you know, what tactics, techniques, procedures they're actually using. As defenders, we need to understand that and be able to respond to that by making sure our defenses are actually up to scratch. And, you know, as I said, intelligence is key. You will note that the strategy that came out, um, the cybersecurity strategy for Australia, intelligence is all over the document. And I'm really, really pleased that that is actually the case. You need to understand who is attacking you and how before you can defend yourself. And that's why intelligence and actionable intelligence is very, very key. And the final piece to the puzzle is you've got to be strategic. You cannot just do this stuff like whack-a-mole. You've got to understand, you know, where your risk appetite is, what do you want to take on, and how do you actually get there? So work towards a plan, have a game plan. Otherwise, you will just constantly get taken down. 
Um, Jack, your thoughts, especially around the um, attack-based and intelligence side of things? Wow. Okay. So intelligence is huge, right? So probably the bulk of what we do, or well, no, I'm retired now. The bulk of what we did or what I used to be part of, um, when you look at one of our cyber mission teams or our cyber combat teams, um, the bulk of it was intelligence. Most of the work was the intelligence, right? Um, the problem with the intelligence is this, uh, especially, and, and Ashwin kind of touched right onto it, you know, whether you're talking about in cyberspace, there is no such thing as a demarcation between commercial and government. It just does not exist. Right. We found this out when we created our Department of Homeland Security and our silos of the critical infrastructure. Right. You guys are doing the same thing with your journey with home affairs. And as home affairs grows and starts to pull things in. Right. So we had silos. We had the transportation critical infrastructure. We had the financial critical infrastructure. We had, you know, there were 17 of them. Right. Including now election as a critical infrastructure. All of those are maintained by commercial sector entities, right? Obviously, banks, financial sector. But yet, look what happened when the banks got hammered. Our response was to create U.S. Cyber Command, a DOD capability with Title 10 authority to do offensive cyberspace operations, because most people don't realize this. I come from the national intelligence community. You know, our NSA legally is not mandated or authorized to do offensive capability, right? Um, the old joke is when you listen on net and you make a mistake, you just went from exploitation to an attack, right? Because that's the difference between an attack and exploitation, a mistake, right? Because when you brick a router because you configured it wrong because you were trying to listen um, and you messed up the access control list or the firewall rule set and you accidentally bricked the target network, you've just attacked them. It's a title tenant. NSA is not allowed to do that, right? Legally. So we had to literally create another framework. And the bulk of what US Cyber Command does is provide intelligence intelligence on what the target is. And, and as Ashwin knows very well, attribution, the who's who in the cyber zoo, who's actually doing what, is probably one of the hardest things to do in the U.S. government. Now, imagine the U.S. government with all of its resources, all of its extra legal authorities, all of its accesses, all of the partners, including Australia, the Five Eyes, and all the rest of the mission partners, with all of that at our disposal, we still found attribution, who did it, one of the most perplexing problems we had. Now, to ask a commercial entity to do that, forget about it, right? Because they just lack all that, right? However, what's interesting about what Ashwin said is one of the things that scares us is that unlike the U.S. military or the Department of Defense, the commercial sector has a business model they got to keep alive and they've got money. And they will make statements like, we have the ability to hire people who will go do this for us, right? Now we get into a really squirrely situation where you have private entities taking the law into their own hands to make the pain stop. That is not a place you want to be, right? So there's this really interesting dynamic tension between government and commercial where the two have to work together um, without obviously the government letting loose all the you know, precious secrets that it has. And, you know, you can't know how we know what we know, but we're going to tell you this is what we think is happening. And then the commercial sector takes that information and up armors their infrastructure. But having said that, Ashwin said a key word here, strategic. You got to be strategic about that. Most of cybersecurity today is based on an antiquated model of a hardware-based perimeter where you own the data center. They, it was in a room surrounded by a fence with a lock on the door. Those days are over. 
If your security posture is not built on a notion of two things, identity and data, you're doing it wrong. You're spending the wrong money because the identity is the person or device anywhere in the world, wherever it has access. And the data is really what the adversary is going after. So if you're spending money to protect infrastructure and boxes, you're spending the wrong money, right? Whether you're government or you're commercial, you really need to be protecting the data. And that's talking about things like encryption and identity. So enough said. Guys, I just want to pick up that point of attribution. Is the culture of reporting around cyber attacks and cyber resilience, is that changing? Is it becoming more open or do you think it's still quite a clandestine activity? Well, I'm going to tell you, and then I'll turn it over to Ashwin. One of the things that ruffled our feathers quite significantly was when somebody, uh, well, you know, we can talk about it, right? So when CrowdStrike was pre-IPO and they were pre-business, right? All of a sudden, we had a commercial entity that we all knew who was doing this. We all knew who was attacking the United States uh, entities, if you will. We all knew it. No one was, the government was not publicly willing to come out and say who it was. And then we had this commercial entity that said, we're going to come out and name them. We're going to publicly name and shame the, uh, you know, the entities, the Chinese. Now, back to my earlier point, though, Kat, now we've got a legal issue because there was some stuff, some squirrely stuff happening where you had commercial entities that somehow got onto net and were turning on cameras on remote devices to actually screenshot and, and face grab the people on their computer as they were doing that. Were they legally authorized to do that? How did they get that information? So now we get into some really weird conversations about attribution and who has the ability to do that. Now, having said that, Kat, you open up a can of worms now because, for example, if the U.S. government, if I'm a commercial entity and I have done risk assessments and I've, I've you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to spend money over here. I'm going to assume I'm going to accept risk over here. I'm going to have gaps in my infrastructure here. Um, and wherever I can't cover with cybersecurity money, I will buy insurance, cyber insurance. That's great. If I get hacked, if I get whatever, uh, I get cyber insurance. But if the U.S. government comes out and says the attribution is thus a nation state actor did that. Now that's a act of war clause. And the financial institution now has an incentive not to pay that out. And the commercial entity is like, wait a minute. Right. So now attribution is such a loaded word. And the point is, at least on our side of the water, we haven't figured all this out. The law has not caught up with words like attribution and cyber insurance. And if the government. So now governments are reticent to come out and actually name names because it has legal and financial ramifications on the commercial entities. And we don't want the commercial entities to kind of go and take things into their own hands. So this becomes a very wicked problem, which, by the way, I love because everyone dials in to listen to the ADM podcast on cyber. They're thinking they're going to hear technology and we're talking about all this boring stuff. But it's, it's the important stuff. This is what policymakers worry about. Yeah, because technology changes extremely rapidly and you've got to have policy that it, you're not going to be able to keep up. So you've got to have a policy that will encompass what's likely to happen. Or you know, it's like with drones and privacy. You already have privacy laws. Just apply them to drones, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, moving on in the, uh, in the topics and so on, the next one we wanted to look at is uh, the Australian Signals Directorate. They're moving away from certifying cybersecurity standards. So um, we'll start with yourself, Ashwin. What, what do you see are the uh, flow-on effects for this in defence and the uh, wider cyber landscape? Right, let me start by saying danger, Will Robinson. Um, <laughs> look, um, so what they're actually allowing now is um, self-assessments are actually allowed. Um, RF assessments can be done 
but you know, with assessments, it is actually up to the assessor. Um, and I have seen varying results um, where we actually have a similar regime. So, and look, my humble opinion is that what we are actually doing is effectively risking having various levels of security. You know, once a common platform disappears and you're really reliant on people doing self-assessments and really the, um, the opinion, that's what it's going to be, the opinion of the assessor, whether you are secure or not. So that, that is very concerning. And obviously, um, as we are moving more and more data into the cloud, you know, going back to what Jack was talking about, we've got to make sure that where the data lives is secure. So moving away from having a central rigorous body that could actually give you that approval, the tick of approval, onto something which is a little bit more deregulated, so to speak, um, frankly, does, does concern me. Um, I don't want to be seeing different degrees of security coming in. Um, and, you know, the adversary is effectively picking on the weakest link in the chain and, and going for it. That's, that's the concern that I actually have. Um, Jack, your thoughts? Oh, so you're going to ask, by the way, for people that are listening to the podcast, when you heard Danger Will Robinson, what you did not see was Ashwin's Tyrannosaurus Rex arms moving up in the air like uh, <laughs> Will the Robot, or Robbie the Robot. Um, so here, here's the issue. Um, it, so standards matter, right? Standards matter. Putting on my old pirate hat, my old uh, adversary hat, exploitation hat, offensive cyberspace, as we call it now, OCO, offensive cyberspace operations hat. I love the fact of having a government entity come into the commercial sector to do a assessment, to do an assessment. Why? Because it gives the government an, a, a visibility, a deep visibility into what's actually going on out there, which allows them to posture and build a strategy to respond to bad things when they happen, not find out after the fact, you know, because nine times out of 10, as Ashwin knows, he's done this before. What typically happens is when you get punched in the face, right? The human body, mother nature has figured this out millions of years ago. When I get punched in the face, I don't stop and ask who did it and how was my face constructed and what was, let me look at the log books on my face and let me, let me figure out my, no, mother nature figured out responding kind. And then she's narrowed it down to a binary conversation, fight or flight, right? I will immediately, and it's autonomic, right? My lizard part of my brain, that lizard brain will literally go, I'm either going to respond in kind immediately to stop it, or I'm going to run away, right? We're not there yet, right? And so if ADF or ASD is going to pull out, right? And, and I love them, right? I worked with these guys and girls uh, in my previous life, right? They're part of that very small nucleus of partners. Um, you know, you got, you got great capability there, right? Now, is the question they're pulling away because there's other priorities and they just don't have it? Or is it because there's another conversation where commercial sector doesn't want that encroachment of government into there because now you got some other conversations going on? Don't know. Uh, I'm not privy to that stuff anymore now that I'm retired. Um, but what I will say is if they're not doing it, somebody else needs to. Right. Maybe that's home affairs that then picks it up. Right. One of the challenges we have, though, when it comes to that is the standards issue. Right. So on our side, we're grappling with the fact that. There is no, it's publicly acknowledged, right? Our NSA has probably some of the best, and I and I don't say this just because I used to work there, but you know, I've been there. I've been on the DOD side, on the Army uh, and the Joint side, as well as Special Operations side, but I've also been on the NSA side and the other agency side. So I can speak to this um, quite confidently. There's probably no better team on the face of the earth doing what they do when it comes to that kind of thing. 
And what happened was we stood up the Department of Homeland Security and our government said, rightfully so, you have the responsibility for protecting critical infrastructure on the commercial side. You know, okay, that's great. But they lack the tools, the people, the teams, the experience, you know, just the procedures, the TTPs, if you will. Right. So typically now what's happening is we've created a bureaucracy, another layer of bureaucracy onto this, where in order to do something, you have an agency that's been levied the responsibility, but they can't do it. So they have to bring in the people that were doing it to work under them. So you have all this weird cultural dynamic going on. Um, my fear is that if uh, if ASD pulls out, what replaces that? Right. It's got to be somebody. You got to have some kind of framework in there. And that framework's got to be practiced. It's got to be a procedure and everybody's got to be comfortable with everybody. You got to build a culture with it. So I guess, guys, when it comes to, you know, the, the standardization and the resilience and cybersecurity, um, our supply chain, obviously, in both nations has a lot of SMEs involved. Uh, it can be quite overwhelming entering the defense uh, ecosystem and knowing what cybersecurity means in practice on the ground every day. So what kind of questions should SMEs be asking to make sure that their networks are protected and are resilient? What I see, and this is a constant frustration of mine, and, uh, you know, frankly, um, there is a lot of vendor fud around this, is buy a tool. It's going to fix your problem. Everything is a silver bullet, right? My response to that would be a fool with a tool is still a fool, right? I have seen so much technology being deployed in organizations, so much money being spent, which achieves nothing because people just throw another hammer at it and throw another spanner at it and ex- expect the problem is going to go away. It doesn't, which is why we are seeing the breaches um, that we are seeing now. My mantra always has been is take a strategic approach, you know, understand what your risk appetite is, understand you know, from a commercial perspective and even from a public sector perspective, how much risk are you actually willing to take? Figure out where you are and you work your way up. Then you decide what tools and people and process controls you actually need. Now, it's the triad that's actually important. You can have the world's best tools in place, right? But if you don't have the right people to operate it or if you don't have the right processes to govern the use of those tools, um, you are still going to be in a hole which you won't be able to get out of. And frankly, it's these gaps in between these tools. It's this lack of trained people. It's this lack of process that actually leads to the adversaries getting into your environment. Again, going back to the strategy that was actually communicated yesterday, there is a specific section in there actually about training our people to become um, more more cyber effective, you know, getting trained in cybersecurity. So the government's realized that the people aspect is actually key. Yes, there is a huge shortage globally, but we need to make sure that it's the combination of, you know, people, process and technology um, that is actually going to lead to lead you to a better outcome. It's really about understanding how all of this fits into your security posture and then aligning, aligning that well to your uh, risk appetite without actually understanding where you are, where you want to go. You'll never get there, frankly. And that's really what the bad guys are actually looking for. Yeah, so that's a great point. So I, before I got into the tech world, I cut my teeth. I came in in the 80s as an infantry guy jumping out of planes, right? And w- when we would go practice, you know, this is pre-global war on terrorism stuff in the 80s. Whenever we would go to the National Training Center and practice, we would always get beat. And the reason why is human nature is when mutually supporting t- 
teams would look at the map and go, who's guarding what? They would always find a land feature like a river or a hill or something and say, all right, everything to the right of this I got, everything to the left of that you got. Where do you think the bad guys went? Right up the river, right? They go right up the river because everyone just assumed the other guy was watching it and nothing was ever covered by fire or in the case of cybersecurity, you know, tools or, you know, sensors or, you know, whatever you want to deploy. So adversaries knew this. So as Ashwin said, nothing we're saying is new. This is all old school stuff that we've been doing forever, right? But it's about the basics, right? Number one, visibility. If I was an SME, to Kat's point, if I was an SME joining an organization for the first time, the very first question I would ask is, who's my visibility person? And then, of course, everyone's going to look at me like, what do you mean by that? And I would say, well, that's the first problem we got. If I need to know who's my visibility person, I need to know not only what's on my network, but that's the easy question. And I guarantee you we're probably not doing that right, right? Because most organizations only get to about 50 to 70% of asset inventory. And now it's even worse with COVID and everyone's buying their own stuff, right? So, but that, that we couldn't even do that in the old days. Good. So people want to buy tools and all these fancy solutions, but they can't even answer the very first question, which is my visibility. Because without visibility, you can't do risk. And without risk, you don't know what's going on. And if you don't know what's going on, you can't respond. So it all builds off of that. But today's world, and you recall earlier, I said, forget about the infrastructure. I don't care about the infrastructure. I don't care if an adversary bricks one of my boxes or does ransomware attacks on a box or compromise it. You know why? Because it's not about the box. It's about the data. I care about the data. If I can protect the data with encryption, I don't care what they do to the box because they're not able to touch the data. That's the conversation. So now, Visibility takes on a whole new meaning. Back to Ashwin's point, thinking strategically, the point is visibility now is not about asset inventory. It's about what is my data and where is my data going? That's it. Because I need to know what's talking to what, not what's on my network, but what's talking to what, where's that data going? And then as I identify that workload, confirm or deny it, lock it down, secure it with encryption and make it disappear from the network so the adversary doesn't see it and move on to the next work. And then we start building in a conversation around resiliency where just like mother nature has figured out, I'm going to get attacked every day. I'm going to get hit every day. I'm going to get probed and bumped by unknown things every day. But guess what? I really don't care because here's the deal. What happens when I get cold? Mother Nature has figured out. If I get cold, Mother Nature says, protect the brain, protect the heart, protect the lungs. So lose the fingers. All the blood starts drawing away. Just like on a network, right? If I'm getting attacked, I'll lose boxes. I'll seed ground on net all I want because I'm protecting the critical data flows to keep the business going. Or in the case of the military, extending, I want to make sure that I keep connectivity to my operational maneuver elements. Or if I'm on net fighting in cyberspace, that my maneuver units can continue to maneuver. And at the end of the day, if you think about it, folks, that's really what makes this different than anything else. Because unlike any other domain, air, land, sea, space, Cyberspace is the only domain where we actually have to create the very domain we're fighting in. We're actually, it, it would be like a Navy SEAL saying, before I can get to the target, I have to magically create water. Then I got to swim through the water to do the mission. No one else has to do that. Fighter planes don't have to worry about making air. SEALs don't have to worry about it. Ships don't have to worry about it. Tankers don't have to worry about it on land. Only cyberspace has to worry about making that thing. It's man-made. So, and I'm shutting up there because we're going to run out of time. That's why you never turn it over to me, Ashwin. <laughs> no, well, it's uh, it is the 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 whole concept of maneuvering in uh, the new domain of uh, electronic warfare, cyberspace, that whole electromagnetic magnetic spectrum. It is 
a new area, but I like how you keep bringing back to old school concepts and the basics and so on and and looking at the data as opposed to the tech, which keeps changing, but you're always going to want that data protection. But you did mention old school and we've talked old school a little and one of the classic old school sides of of the art of hacking and, and espionage and so on is the human element. And we've seen it from kids dumpster diving to find names and phone books and then calling up and saying, hey, I'm so-and-so's PA and they've just left and I've got a problem. Can you reset a password? All that kind of stuff. And the old joke is as soon as you've got two people, you can man in the middle and 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 work them and, and use that um, human psychology. So how does the psychological element play into your projects in both defense and commercial? And uh, I guess if we open with you, Jack, and then let Ashwin wind it up. Okay. Well, you know, Ashwin loves to talk about this one too. This is an, this is an easy one. This is a softball for Ashwin because, you know, if you're going to ask an organization, let's just take fishing. I've heard Ash talk about this all the time. If you're going to ask an organization, don't click on a link. What are you doing? I mean, is that your security policy? Don't Please don't tell me that you're spending all your training dollars to, to continually make people so afraid to the point where at some point, if everybody literally did what we're really asking them to do, the business would stop because no one would click on anything. That cannot be the answer. And oh, by the way, if the if the email lands on your desk and there's a uh, an attachment on there. So as an example, old school, let's go old school. If I send you a file, an Outlook, you know, an old Office 365 file and you it says invoice and you click on that and that's got an execu- executable that drives a PowerShell request to go out on the net and pull down some kind of payload You've already skipped, and I'm going to turn over to Ashwin to run with this. You've already skipped all of your infrastructure security. You've already gone through the firewall. You've already gone through the router. You've already it, you've already failed, and yet nobody ever likes to talk about that, right? They want to sell you another tool. They want to sell you endpoint solutions. Uh, I can't tell you, Ashwin, how many times have you seen someone, you say, how many endpoint tools do you have to protect your endpoint devices? By the way, you can't even tell me how many endpoint devices you have, but how many tools you got on the ones that you know, and they go, I don't know, maybe about 10, you know? So anyway, what do you think, Ash? Uh, Look, I mean, I think you touched on some very, very critical points, right? Um, The human factor is the easiest to exploit in an organization, period. Now, here's the thing, guys. Adversaries don't break into networks anymore. They log in. They log in. Why? Because it's really, really easy to steal credentials. Go on the dark web. You can buy them a dime a dozen. Seriously, don't waste your time trying to break into a network. Just get a just get a valid credential. It's easy to do. And why and why else wouldn't you do that, Ashwin? Because you can't do it. Now you can't prove attribution. If I go on the dark web and I steal someone's credentials, tell me how you do attribution at that point. It's I mean, come on, folks. I mean, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly how it works, right? And why do you think phishing is the popular tool of trade right now? Right, because it's easy and it works. You use phishing to either get credentials. You use phishing to actually lock somebody's systems down. Toll, that happened to them twice, not once, twice. Makes you wonder what happened the second time around, why they didn't actually learn the first time around. That's another whole conversation for another day. Um, yeah, and you know, to, to Kat's point, if you're an SME showing up to the company for the first time, your first question is visibility. The second question you ask is, we're gonna, people are going to click on links. So what, what's our response when it happens? How does, the, how does this company currently respond when that happens? How fast can we mitigate that threat and that race condition that when you click on it, it's the propagation of the effect across the network. How do we stop it? And who's the person that has it, right? 
That's the conversation. Exactly. Exactly right, Jack. Um, and that's why we're seeing what we're actually seeing, right? And, you know, going back to Jack's point, um, the reason why actually people use phishing, the adversaries use phishing, is as soon as the phishing email has actually hit your inbox, they have gone right past your, you know, half a million dollar firewall, million dollar IDS, you know, two million dollar mail filter. That's what they've just done. It's literally that simple, folks. The perimeter doesn't actually exist, right? And that's why this is very much, it's, it's a complex area. So let, let me get that straight. The second thing is it actually touches all three areas that I mentioned earlier, people, process, and technology. Yes, you've got to train your people. But again, going back to Jack's point, what's the saying to err is human, right? People will make mistakes. That, what, that's what actually makes us humans. Now, as defenders, take a step back. Think about what that actually means, right? We need to actually have other layers of control, both at technology and process level, to make sure that you can, A, pick up the incident. If, God, if you don't know about it, there's nothing you can do about it, but also quarantine it quickly, right? There's a difference, and it's not difficult to do, between you hitting the newspaper twice as being taken down as opposed to keeping it contained to either one laptop or a group of laptops or a bunch of subsystems and actually not hitting the news, being able to recover quickly. So you need to actually have, funnily enough, a plan, be strategic, you know, understand how you can actually, uh, you know, configure your human firewall. That's the term we use. But remember, as I said, humans are humans. You know, somebody will make a mistake one day. And frankly, the adversary is actually getting very, very clever. Um, they are, they, you know, they will go on Facebook. They'll actually go on social media, figure you out and send you such a targeted phishing email. It just feels like uh, somebody, you know, sent it to you. Right. So that'll happen. People are going to click. What happens next is up to you, your defenses. You know, Ashwin, it's almost like you want to be, it's the salamander defense. I, I should be like my network, my network strategy for security should be like a salamander. If I get threatened, I don't care because I'll just slough off that appendage and I'll run away. And guess what? The salamander lives. And later on, I'll grow another appendage because it's not a big deal to me. When we can get to that point in a conversation and see how easy that is to talk, that's not even technical. But everybody gets the concept, right? Right now, we're trying to protect everything and everything is a catastrophic hit. One thing goes down and the entire organization dies. That's where we're failing. We're not being strategic. We got to think like Mother Nature, right? So when the salamander gets under threat, hey, take my leg. I don't care. I'll grow another one back once I'm out of danger. Not a big deal. Why? You know, Mother Nature's figured it out, right? We're still playing games with this other thing. But eh, anyway. I really like the way you keep bringing back um, the lessons from Mother Nature, Jack. It's, um, I think it's a really great analogy for what we're trying to do here is be more strategic about what we do and how we do it. Um, I think for way too many people, cyber is something that the IT geeks do in the corner. And it's not. It's part of our core business now, I would say. Uh, and a lot more people need to understand that. Thank you both so much uh, for sharing your thoughts and insights today and some of your humor as well. I can still see Ashwin doing his T-Rex arm thing. That was great. They're little hands, little hands. Uh, well, they fit on the <laughs> keyboard better. It makes sense. I get it. <laughs> yes, gentlemen, that has been fantastic. Uh, in this day and age where everyone's starting to finally realize that their uh, brand new toaster can actually take part in a distributed denial of service attack or can be uh, stealing credentials and so on and it's, it's a mad world, but it's not about the technology. It's about going back to the processes, the people, and assuming you're going to get hit, and how do you deal with it? 
So this has been an absolutely fantastic discussion. As Kath said, thank you so much for all of this. And uh, with that, we'll wrap the episode. Thank you, uh, Jack and Ashwin, and thanks, Kath. And we'll be back with the next episode shortly. Thanks. Thanks, all. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yeffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence, or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au, or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. Thank you.